after some brief introductions, we'll um, get right to it. To my left, my immediate left, is Congressman Henry Cuellar, who was first elected in 2005 to represent Texas Congressional District 28. He is currently on the House Appropriations Committee. Are you still the only Texas Democrat on that committee, sir? Um, he's also on the subcommittee on Homeland Security and Transportation, Housing and Urban Development. He is also a former uh, Texas House member and a former uh, <clears throat> Excuse me, Secretary of State. Uh, to his left is Congressman uh, Blake Farenthold, who was. <laughs> um, he represents Congressional District 27 since 2011. He serves on the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, and the Judiciary Committee. Uh, he was also worked previously as a radio commentator and practiced with the Kleberg Law Firm. Next, we have uh, Congressman Joaquin Castro, who uh, was first elected in 2012 to represent Texas Congressional District 20 serves on the House Armed Services and Foreign Affairs Committees. And in 2013, he was the, uh, elected the president of the Freshman Democratic Caucus. He's also very familiar with Austin, having served for 10 years um, at the Capitol up the street here. To his left is uh, Congressman Robert, prefers to be called Beto O'Rourke, because he's an El Paso boy. Uh, first elected in 2012 to represent Texas Congressional District uh, 16. Sits on the House Armed Services and Veteran Affairs Committee. Uh, previously, he was a city council member for six years, and he's the co-founder of Stanton Street Technology. Last but definitely not least, we have Congressman John Ratliff, who was a uh, Republican from Heath, elected to represent Congressional District 4 in 2014, member of the House Judiciary and Homeland Security Committee. He also serves as chairman of the House, <coughs> excuse me, Homeland Security Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, Infrastructure Protection, and Security Technologies. That's a lengthy title there for that committee. So, Homeland Security begins at home you know, when I was thinking about introducing this panel, I think the term Homeland Security, everybody obviously uh, remembers when the Department of Homeland, uh, excuse me, Department of Homeland Security was created in the post-9-11 um, world in the government. And it seemed to initially be focused on threats from far away. Um, that conversation has since changed. And there's been a lot of focus on homeland security in the southern border. You know, a lot of folks say, well, we're only as good as our weakest link. And if the southern border is our weakest link, then that's, we have to pay attention to that. Obviously, in the last six or seven, eight years, immigration reform, um, the violence in Mexico has put this front and center. Uh, lots of candidates on the left and the right use this as a talking point to uh, the chagrin or the pleasure of most people, depending on who you ask. So I just wanted to, to, to sort of lay that groundwork. Somebody's saying, why, you know, homeland security panel in Texas, um, that this is going to focus very heavily, obviously, on the southern border, uh, which some folks say is, you know, porous and wide open, and some folks say is uh, stronger than it's ever been with more boots on the ground, um, you know, in the last 12, 15 years. So I wanted to start off with an issue that in 2011 touched here at the state level. Um, it was very controversial. It didn't resurface in 2013, and it resurfaced again in 2015, and that's the issue of sanctuary cities. And I know that at the state level, this has always been at play, it's been a talking point, but it never gets passed, and some people credit that to the influence that the business lobby has, you know, working behind the scenes at the Capitol. I think Congressman Castro will attest to what happened in 2011 with the Sanctuary Cities Bill then. Uh, but the, the conversation has shifted, um, some people say deservedly so, to the national level, uh, specifically in the recent months with the, uh, the, the killing of a California uh, woman, Catherine Steinle. Um, and Congressman Ratliff, I want to start off with you, because you, her, her father testified before your committee recently, and you, you said, uh, first of all, you, you expressed your regret that the President hadn't um, personally apologized for what happened, and I'm sure you all heard the case of a previously removed undocumented immigrant um, who was charged with killing Ms. Stanley, where she was just taking a stroll down, down the boardwalk. Um, again, that reignited this, this conversation about sanctuary cities. Um, and to go back, sanctuary cities in Texas, they're genuinely loosely defined as a government entity that does not allow local law enforcement to enforce immigration laws. They vary from state to state, but that's sort of the boilerplate definition of these issues. So, uh, Congressman, and, and during that committee, you said that the president's policies were directly responsible for what happened to this young woman. Um, and I wanted to see if you could elaborate on that. What specific policies in general, and how have those policies sort of emerged over the, uh, the Obama administration? Sure. So let me clarify one thing, Julio. I, I didn't express disappointment that the president didn't apologize. I expressed disappointment that he didn't express condolences to the Steinle family. And the reason for that was, you know, when we had very public deaths like uh, Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and Freddie Gray, um, and those related to issues like gun control and alleged police profiling and things that the president really wanted to talk about, he was very public and expressing condolences, talking with the, uh, with the families. Um, 
and now on an issue where uh, Kate Steinle was, uh, her death is directly attributable to the fact that uh, we don't have rigorous enforcement of immigration laws in this country. Um, the president was, you know, was AWOL on this issue, didn't, as you heard from Mr. Steinle, hadn't contacted the family, hadn't expressed any condolences, and so I was disappointed in that. And I'm disappointed in the president, um, you know, primarily because we have one primary role of the federal government. We spend $4 trillion a year in this country on all sorts of things, but the primary role of the federal government is to provide for the common defense. And part and parcel of that is ensuring the integrity and sovereignty of our territorial borders. And it's something that the president um, has only given lip service to. Um, and when it comes to the rule of law and enforcing immigration laws in this country from an interior enforcement standpoint, again, uh, the president, the numbers uh, speak for themselves. The president, um, through his executive amnesty orders uh, and his attempts to circumvent Congress and to write the law himself, um, I think really um, uh, lends support to the argument that, um, you know, that the president is not interested in um, enforcing the immigration laws on the books in this country. The, the argument in the California case though was that this was a, a local entity enforcing its, its rules as it sees fit. I mean, you're, you're from the but, party of, of not big government, of letting you know, local control, letting these folks figure it out. So what exactly, how do you tie um, this, this tragic death to the, president's, to the specific presidential policy? Well, you know, uh, cities like San Francisco that get federal monies um, and federal funds shouldn't be getting that if they're going to ignore federal law. It's pretty simple. And, you know, um, uh, I think the administration uh, should take that position. I think in Congress, we're working to do that. Um, there's a bill that Congressman Gowdy, uh, that uh, Congressman Ferenthold and I, I think, are both co-sponsors of, um, and the president's opposed to that, and the administration's opposed to that. And uh, just as I think we shouldn't send um, money to foreign countries that uh, hate Americans, I don't think we should spend federal dollars and send, spend federal dollars to U.S. cities that won't support U.S. law. Congressman Query, what's, what's your take on sanctuary cities? And I ask you because uh, in the same week this happened in California, there was also uh, a killing in, in Laredo, uh, your district, um, the, the quote-unquote um, hammer murder where an undocumented immigrant who had been removed three times went back into Laredo um, and is charged with killing his girlfriend with a hammer. Um, you know, I, I, I went down and I spoke to some folks that live nearby, and I, I literally ran into a woman who was packing up her SUV saying, I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of Dodge, you know, this freaked me out, I don't want to be here, and she didn't feel safe. So um, what is your take on sanctuary city policies in Texas, and I guess throughout the country, if you don't mind chiming in? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, we're a country of the rule of law, right. and, and if we don't like a law, we need to change it. Uh, I voted against the sanctuary cities because even though I'm a big supporter of immigration reform, we got to follow the law that we have right now. Because what we're seeing is when you have a sanctuary city, then you have local folks who say, we're not going to follow the federal law. Or you can have a Kentucky clerk say, I don't like the gay marriage, and I'm not going to follow the Supreme Court decision. So if we start cherry picking the things that we like or don't like, then the rule of law is not going to apply uh, on that. I sit in the Appropriations Committee for Homeland directly, and we do spend a lot of money. Uh, and the problem that I see in this whole debate is a lot of it's focus on Mexico. And let me just, uh, Mexico and Central America. The relationship we have with Mexico, because it all goes back to mainly Mexico, is that you have politicians and other folks that say our relationship with Mexico, it, it's really based more on distrust instead of having an open dialogue with Mexico. It's based more on seeing Mexico as a threat instead of economics. And Beto knows that you know, the economics of El Paso or the border or even Texas, there's a lot of opportunities there. And finally, the last thing, you know, when you look at, at Mexico, they see Mexico as a problem instead of saying, Part of the problem, instead of saying this is Mexico can be part of the solution. So a lot of it is based on those three premises. And whether you talk about sanctuary city or border security, it's how we see our neighbors. And I think that's part of the problem. Congressman Castro, I'd like to, to ask you about your experience in the State House, where obviously the, the business lobby 
Um, and you know, law enforcement lobby had a lot to do behind the scenes killing the, the Sanctuary Cities legislation in 2011. Yeah. Does it play out the same way in D.C.? I mean, does the Chamber of Commerce or do these folks, the law enforcement folks, do they, are they as active? And if that's the case, do you expect to see any Sanctuary Cities legislation getting anywhere? Well, I mean, the interesting thing about it is that those policies are mostly local policies, right. if not local, then state policies. And as far as the case in San Francisco, the entire nation agrees that what happened in San Francisco was a tragedy. Uh, but no immigration advocate has advocated to allow somebody with seven felonies to remain in this country. So how, so how did... But, but let me point out one more thing. I would also point out that this guy committed these things because he's a bad guy, right. not because he's an immigrant. Just like the people, our fellow American citizens who go and shoot up malls or schools or other places, they do that because there's something wrong with them as persons not because of their immigration status. So you went back and you said nobody's advocating for a, a person that's been charged and, and convicted of these crimes to, to be able to get here. So how did he get here? Well, I'm sorry? So how, how I mean, every, I think everybody would agree with you, but the fact of the matter remains that he did re-enter right. the United States. How is that no, possible? Well, the, the answer would have been to pass comprehensive immigration reform. In the Senate bill of 2013 that was passed in 2013 prioritized who would be allowed to stay and who should be deported, including criminals. And that passed in the Senate, it was blocked in the House of Representatives by the House Speaker, uh, even though it had a majority support among the Congress to pass, it was not allowed, not allowed on the floor for a vote. Uh, Congressman, you're shaking your head over there. If you want to chime in here before I, I move on. Well, I mean, it, again, it just goes back to the points that I they made earlier. Um, it, it, you know, respectfully disagree with sure. uh, Congressman Castro. I mean, you know, President Obama's had seven years to um, implement real reforms with respect to. Um, how he wants to approach the border, and, and he hasn't done that. And, you know, um, the, I mean, border that, that's is, just... the, the border is, is far less secure today than it was when the president uh, uh, took office. It, it has a, the statistics show that, you know, from 2008 to 2014, um, removals of criminal aliens in this country have gone down 56% over that six-year period. Let me address well, let that me just, because you, just, I'll, I'll you don't second. have your numbers right, no, so I'm going to address that. I absolutely do, but let me yield in just a second because the point is, um, you're right, uh, the gentleman who, who, uh, who, um, who killed Ms. Steinle um, wasn't a, a bad person because uh, he's an immigrant. He was a bad person because he's a bad person, and, and unfortunately, the statistics show that one out of every five people coming into this country illegally right now um, from Mexico have committed aggravated felonies, felonies like murder, rape, drug trafficking, those types of crimes. And so, you know, that, that really speaks to the issue. Uh, and here is the fundamental problem in immigration. You can't rely on somebody sticking to the facts. Since 2004, the number of Border Patrol agents has doubled along the border. You agree with that? That's a fact. Since George Bush's term, the number of Border Patrol agents has doubled. In the 19, as, actually, as close as 2000, there were about 1.4 million people coming across our southern border. Today, there are about 400,000 people coming across our southern border. Just, the, this this uh -huh. is hidden what you're talking I just want to read these statistics from, from CBP. This is staffing levels. Um, in 2001, the number of uh, Border Patrol agents on the southwest border was uh, 9,147. 2008, that was 15,442. Now it's up to 18,156. Well, it it's 18,500 on the southern border, right. and the rest, it's, 20, it's a little bit over 21,000. 20,163. Exactly. So 21,000 are total 18,005 here. The rest are in Canada. We keep forgetting about Canada also. That's a different topic, right. but that's just want to let you know. And by the way, the terrorists didn't come in through the southern border. They came in through We'll get to that. We, we got time. Just quickly, I, I want to agree with uh, John with respect to the funding of the sanctuary cities. The go federal government is paying these cities to help enforce the immigration law. If they're not going to enforce the immigration law, we shouldn't pay them. If I pay somebody to fix my computer, they don't fix my computer, I'm going to not pay them. And I also want to talk a second about sanctuary cities as a whole. There's a lot of discussion and debate about sanctuary cities, but if you look at the policies now and what I'm hearing from my uh, sheriffs in the district that I represent, the president's priority enforcement policy is such that even if a sheriff wants to turn uh, uh, an illegal alien over for uh, processing and deportation, the uh, 
federal government isn't taking them. Why are we arguing about sanctuary cities now when in fact we have a sanctuary country if we're not going to deport folks that are caught by our local law enforcement, even if they want to? Congressman Roy. Yeah, you know, the, the, uh, John's comments about Mexican migrants are, I believe, a slightly more clever way to restate what Trump has been saying, that Mexican immigrants are rapists, they're thugs, they're criminals, uh, they're making our, our communities worse. When, when you look at El Paso, Texas, the community I represent, 24% of our community was born in another country, most of them having been born in Mexico. We also happen to be the safest city on the U.S.-Mexico border, the safest city in the state of Texas, and the safest city in the United States four years running. And that is in large part because of, and not in spite of, these Mexican-born members of our community who are here to get ahead, to do better for their kids, to get an education, and to contribute, not take from, communities like ours. And so whether you look at El Paso as an example, and it's not an outlier, you look at other border communities and you see much the same pattern, or you look at what Joaquin was saying, you've doubled the size of the Border Patrol. You're spending $18 billion a year to secure the border at a time where you have record low northbound traffic, record low apprehensions in the El Paso sector, one of the largest sectors. The average agent made five apprehensions not a week, not a month, for the entire year last year. Five apprehensions. You have gone way past the point of diminishing returns. And the thing that we need to be concerned about is not spending more and militarizing the border even further. It's taking our eye off the ball where you have proven risk and threat at our airports, even at our northern border, and the homegrown terrorists and those who would attack others and take from our community. So, the, the facts speak for themselves, and when you follow them, it is clear that migrants, and especially migrants from Mexico, I'd argue, are net contributors to our country and to our communities, not the thugs and criminals that others would have you believe. Con Congressman uh, Ratliff, on the, uh, on the flip side, sir, um, so this uh, from, the, uh, from the LA Times, October 15th article, well, there were two gentlemen, let me finish my question, sir, uh, Jose Fugan and uh, Gustavo Barona, two undocumented uh, immigrants from Honduras. The Department of Homeland Security attorney said that the men that were arrested should not be deported because they were racially profiled by uh, police officers. So what's, is, is, that, is that the solution, to, to assume that anybody that looks a certain way is here that's undocumented and in round them up? Because one way or another, there are going to be people slipping through the cracks. So what is the solution in your, in your Well, advice? before I answer that, let me, let me you know, follow up on this. You can talk about increasing the number of agents, but if you increase the traffic by a, by a percentage of 1,000%, you don't have enough agents to keep up with the demand. So let's look at unaccompanied minors. Under, uh, when President Obama came into office, we were averaging between six and 8,000 unaccompanied minors showing up at our southern border a year. It went to 60,000, and it went to 60,000 because of the CBP and those statistics that you were reading off of will tell you and have testified before Congress that it was because of the President's um, lack of enforcement on, with respect to deportation so the numbers went up by a thousand percent, literally. The, the numbers went up because the Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala became the deadliest countries, not just in this hemisphere, but in the world. People were fleeing literally terrorist organizations, uh, these different Mara groups in, I mean, in with, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. With, with, uh, all, with they, all due respect, Beto, uh, these, these, these terrorist groups just popped up, popped up from 2008 on. I mean, Circumstances didn't change substantially circumstances in the last got six years. Much, much worse. And if we try to solve problems at the border, we're not going to really get anywhere. What we need to do is try to figure out how we help these countries, the citizens there, the governments where we can work with them to address the fundamental root causes. You can build the highest wall. You can put as many machine gun emplacements as you want uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border. These kids were not trying to escape detec right. de 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 detection. They were turning themselves into the Border Patrol agents themselves. They needed help. And we are a country whose very strength and success uh, and power comes from these successive waves of migrants who've needed our help, who've found sanctuary here, and who've made this country that much stronger for it. I, and and this I is would, the latest way that happened. But, but you know, talk about turning a clever argument, uh, you know, around. Uh, you know, if someone's for a secure border, doesn't mean that they're against immigrants. Uh, you know, I am very much in favor of. You know, I understand as the uh, descendant of an immigrant how this country works and what makes it great. I'm just going back to the point of. 
to solve these problems, and I hope we can find agreement here, is that the first thing we ought to do is secure our border, not with uh, a wall with machine gun, and, I mean, I'm not for, not for any of that stuff, but, but we can and should secure our border, number one. Number two, focus on interior enforcement of the folks that are here. I don't think they should all be treated how, how the same way. How could you secure the border did against you, an eight-year-old boy who <laughs> is fleeing violence, persecution, death, who's, who's knocking on our front door in El Paso or Brownsville or Loretta? What, what would you put there that would stop him from Con coming? Congressman O'Rourke, I'm yeah. going gonna, gonna to change subjects here. Congressman Custer wants to say one last thing, and I'm going to move on to the other Yeah, topic. I was going to say, you know, if anything, the critique against Congress and, and the State Department and, and USAID is that if you look at the aid to Latin America over the last five years or so before last summer, it had actually been decreased by about $400 million. So we were robbing Peter to pay Paul, taking money from Latin America and the Caribbean and putting our aid in other places. And then 2014 hit, and of course, there was a proposal for about $1.1 billion. That, likely, that amount likely won't go through Congress, but hopefully something will. And we're robbing our grandchildren right now to pay for the things that we are spending right now. Remember, the United States is way in debt. We're spending $1.40 for every dollar we take in. So we do have some financial considerations. And foreign aid to a lot of folks, myself included, is one of the things that is most ripe for cutting. Well, well, well being in appropriations, foreign aid is less than 1% of the whole federal budget, uh, number one. Got to uh, start somewhere, uh, Henry. It's, it's uh, 1%. <laughs> Uh, the other thing is, look, there are five countries that are part of the, what I call the $1 billion club in the, nation, in the world. Israel gets $3.1 billion. Egypt gets over a billion dollars. Afghanistan gets over a billion dollars. And Pakistan and the, the country of Jordan, they get over a billion dollars, especially Israel. Before we did Plan Merida, you know how much we were giving our largest, one of our largest trading partners, Mexico? $36 million. And if you look at the Latin America, you're right. You know, we have a proposal right now to try to give them some money. I can tell you, all we did in appropriations, and we're hoping we can do it a little bit, increased it by $80 million. That was it for all the Central American countries, the triangle that you're talking about. That said, whether it's, it's $36 billion, $36 million, or $5, is that money well spent when you have the world's most notorious drug lord being able to walk out or you know walk out of a tunnel in the Mexican prison. I mean, is the, what we're doing in Mexico is it working? I mean, is this are we talking about things and, and all this money whether we're giving to Mexico or not? Is, Mex is the Mexican government making gains? Because a lot of people say they're not. Yeah, a lot of people say that you know they're well, taking it, us for suckers. Look, look, you know, it, it, Mexico has problems just like we have problems here in the U.S. and like any other country. But to say we're going to give up on Mexico is the wrong approach. Yeah, did they mess up on, on El Chapo? Of course they did, but. Now they're trying to uh, extradite, they've extradited other people. Right. But the thing is, we keep seeing Mexico as a threat and not as a partner. If we see Mexico as a partner, we can do a lot better because if you look at it, look at trade, for example. Every day there's $1.3 billion of trade between the U.S. and Mexico. My hometown of Laredo is an example. We handle 12,000 trailers a day. If you look at those trailers and line them up, in one year they would go around the world twice around the world. The problem is we keep seeing Mexico as a threat. We see them with mistrust, and we just don't see the opportunity that we have, and they're not going away. We got a, you know, almost a 1,200-mile border with them, and we're not, they're not going away. We have to see them with different eyes, and this is a problem that we have, is we look at the whole world, the 1% federal uh, budget, uh, we see the whole world, but we don't see our friends down to the south. Congressman O'Rourke, I want to I talk about the, the image, and I know that you, know, you uh, just um, sponsored a, a binational uh, marathon that took people to uh, Ciudad Juarez to El Paso, and it was, I think, the first time, and correct me if I'm wrong, 14 years, perhaps? That's right. Um, yeah. And it was sort of a symbol of things are getting better, and you can go back to the Mercado and, and things like that. There was, I was on a panel recently with KBIA in El Paso uh, talking about the movie Sicario. Um, the new movie just came out with uh, Benicio del Toro. There was a lot of people upset. Uh, the, the, the mayor of, of Ciudad Juarez threatened to sue the production company because of the image that it portrayed um, Ciudad Juarez and, and folks in El Paso were a little bit upset about that as well. Um, you, you had this, so it's funny because the day after I was on this panel, they, six women were found murdered in Juarez and they had a 1.5, uh, I think it was, I don't know how many tons of cocaine were found on the, on the port. It was yeah. the second highest uh, cocaine seizure. So it seems when things are bad in Juarez, it's, it's very convenient for us to say, well, that's over there where this, it's safe on this side. But then at the same time, you want to say, well, this is one community just separated by a bridge. What's right. the balance? What's the difference? Which one yeah. do you choose and when? So your characterization is, is spot on. We're, we're one community of three million people 
uh, but, a million but, of but you could take that to say that it is, it's a dangerous community then. If yeah. It's, if it's well, well, so I, I do. So, so some people were satisfied uh, in the depth of the violence in Juarez when it was the deadliest city in the world to say, you know, I'm on the U.S. side of the border. We have the safest city in, in the, the country, and it doesn't really concern me. But when you recognize that it's a fully integrated community economically, familially, uh, culturally, in every way imaginable. There were 30 million crossings last year between Ciudad Juarez uh, and El Paso. We passed $90 billion of trade through our ports of entry. We're, we're very much connected as, as we should be. Then you recognize it's our problem too. And, and you have to, it, it should force you to think about uh, whether this is solely Mexico's problem. I mean, who created Chapo? Where is that money coming from? Who's using his drugs? What policies place a premium on the crossing of those drugs so great that kids are willing to die for or kill for the privilege of being able to get them across? And so you have a city like Juarez, which after NAFTA industrialized at a pace that probably matches Chicago at the end of the 19th century, where you have tens of thousands of people coming in from the countryside to work in factories in northern Mexico without corresponding social infrastructure, schools, hospitals, clinics, and just the civic infrastructure that's necessary for community to be successful, yes, you're going to have some problems. And when you add on top of that six to eight billion dollars crossing through in drugs and illegal uh, narcotics trade, any city would have a, a hard time managing that. So we have some culpability here, and we also have some responsibility to, to make things better. And that's why I think, as others on the, the panel have said, Henry uh, just now talked about the very small sum we're spending to help Mexico. We have an opportunity to really help Mexico with some accountability connected to it on governance and rule of law and other issues. But it's not just in Mexico's interest, it's in our interest to get this right. And I, I think we have a chance to do that. Congressman Franthold, you, you know you for personal freedom, individual liberties, tweaking the drug laws, is that going to help? Listen, there's no question that the demand in the United States is the problem. The question is, do you, how, how do you deal with that? Do you, do you legalize it? Do you kick up enforcement? Do you require drug testing for those on public assistance? There are a wide variety of things that could be done to decrease the demand. So uh, lots of options on the table. But again, we, we come back to the issue well, that where do you it stand? is still where, where, so... Where do you stand on it? I mean, if you had a yes or no vote to, to tweak some certain drug laws right now because there's proof that it would help. Well, right now, I would, I would favor increased drug testing uh, for unemployment recipients and work on the demand side by uh, enforcement. I'm, I'm not for uh, you know, legalizing drugs. Chipping away a little bit, that's it, it, not too sweet. It is, but again, I, I think we've got the opportunity to, uh, to, to run demand down a little bit, and I think uh, we will see what develops in uh, states like Colorado uh, that have legalized marijuana, see what that does with respect to the uh, drug traffic. My fear is you've got criminal gangs in Mexico. Let's say we, I was able to ma wave my magic wand and say there's no more demand for drugs from Mexico. You've got a, a group of criminals over there who are used to a certain lifestyle. We've cut off their revenue stream. What are they going to turn to to continue that? Are there going to be more hostage taking? Is there going to be more human trafficking? Is there going to be uh, more uh, robberies, burglaries? I mean, you've got a criminal element over there that's not going to want to give up their money if we were the, able those, to completely turn off the... Blake, I think those were the same questions they were asking in the 1930s. If we legalize alcohol, uh, what's the mob going to do next? Uh, we know the answer to that. The mob didn't go away. They moved to Las Vegas. They got into the trash collection business. Um, they, they were a problem for federal law enforcement for a while, but they were nowhere near as powerful as they were during Prohibition. It's a difficult thing to say, but I think it's important to say it. I think we need to end the Prohibition on marijuana. It's good for this country. It's going to be better for Mexico. Uh, and it's going to allow us to stay focused on the true threats that we see, whether at the southern border uh, or elsewhere. Okay, I, I don't think we can tweak at the edges. Move on to the next topic. This is something that's it's very related. And it, it, some people say it got way blown out of proportion. Some people say it's a legitimate threat. Um, ISIS camps in Mexico. Congressman, do you think, do you think they exist? And, I, and I, this is why I'm asking. Uh, from an email uh, dated April 2015 to Governor Abbott's chief of staff, from a gentleman named Harry Jimenez, who's a deputy special agent in charge for Homeland Security investigations in San Antonio. He said, we have checked our systems at all levels, including classified means, and have found no reporting that confirms or supports the open source media stories. Again, this is going to a, an, a story that had unnamed sources saying that there are camps. And 
I think Congressman O'Rourke will agree that where they said these camps were, I mean, that's like setting up something in the middle of a football field in Anapa. I mean, it's wide open. These camps wouldn't be there. So what, two questions. Do you think that ISIS has a presence in Mexico? And yes or no? And if, if not, how, how big is this sort of uh, problem or this potential threat? Well, I want to be careful. As a member of the Homeland Security uh, Committee, I do get classified briefings sure. on, on some of these topics. And so I'm be careful not to talk about anything. Um, I'm more careful with classified information than ah, others in mind. government. They won't mind. That's what you got. Um, <laughs> yeah, it didn't work so well uh, for Mrs. Clinton. But, but so having said that, um, uh, you know, my opinion is that uh, there is not a coordinated effort between, uh, say, for instance, uh, uh, drug cartels and drug traffickers and, uh, uh, and ISIS. Um, I think we need to be concerned about uh, who's coming across our southern border. Uh, it's well documented that it's, that it's porous and it's easy for um, folks to get across the border. And so I would expect that uh, ISIS supporters and sympathizers that are outside the United States to use that as a point of, of uh, ingress. But as we know, uh, we've got ISIS supporters and sympathizers right here um, in this country. You know, in a few miles outside of my district in Garland, we had an ISIS-inspired right. uh, sure. attack. So, um, but do I think there's a coordinated effort um, out of Mexico? Um, I'm not of that opinion. You know, if I can say this, uh, just generally speaking, uh, the southern border is, is, is the, um, is, they, they look at it all the problems. Remember when the Ebola issue ca uh, came up? Uh, they said, oh, Ebola's coming through the southern border, even though people fly, would fly from Africa, from those countries over here. But it was the southern border. Uh, the Libya story that you have, I want Beto to mention this also back. Well, I'll let you explain that story. That's another story there. Anything else that's wrong, it's always the southern border itself. And, and that's the problem. Mistrust, you know, not seeing Mexico as a cooperation. And, and I'm also in the homeland in appropriations. I can tell you, you know, it, it's, we haven't seen anything there. Could it be? Could it, anything be possible? Of course, anything is possible. But again, it all goes back that if there's a problem, what do they look at? The southern border. If Beto can just mention this thing about the Libyans. Yeah, I saw a uh, headline that someone had dug up from 1981 right. in the El Paso Herald Post, Libyan terror plot suspected in Ciudad Juarez. So obviously that never materialized, yeah. it wasn't there, but Libya and Libyan terrorism was the boogeyman of the day. And of course, people believed that it was going to come across the southern border, much as ISIS, Al-Qaeda before it, et cetera, et cetera, despite the fact that not only has the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, the director of the FBI, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security all said that there is no ISIS or terrorist group in Juarez or Mexico trying to cross. There never, ever has been a recorded instance of a terrorist or a terrorist group or a terrorist plot connected to the southern border. Should we remain vigilant against that possibility? Yeah. Absolutely. We're spending $18 billion a year to do so. But we know that they've come in in airports, they've crossed the northern border, and as John said, they're growing in our own communities. That's where the proven threat has been, and that's where we should keep our eye on. And to that point, I would say, you know, a lot of our focus should be on two things, domestic terrorism and the recruitment of Americans by terrorist groups abroad. Right. Uh, yeah. We need to work with our social media companies to curtail their ability to recruit Americans and have them fly overseas and join them in their fight. 9-11, terrorists, where did they come from? Did they come across the southern border? Name one that crossed the southern border. So Everything is blamed for the border. Before we get into the q and I want to ask uh, about something that's, that's been in the news a lot, and I want to ask about, uh, about Cuba. This is an interesting uh, topic, and people, you know, what does it matter to Texas? It matters to Texas because uh, at least through the three uh, the first three quarters of the fiscal year that just ended, there were more uh, Cubans that came in through the Laredo field office, which uh, Laredo down to Brownsville, Laredo. Um, seeking asylum. Um, there were 18,000 and change. I'm, I'm sure those numbers are 60% more than last year, double the amount from 2013. Um, and that country was just months ago taken off the list of uh, state sponsors of terrorism. There's three remaining, so four a few months ago, Cuba was one of them. That's a pretty big deal. You come in from Cuba, you behave yourself for a year, you get a green card. Do you think something's wrong with that system, Congressman Ratliff? Well, I, uh, I disagree with the, you know, again, this is another instance where I think the president had an opportunity to work with Congress sure. um, on this Cuba issue and didn't, and, uh, and made the decision. Cuba uh, has been a state sponsor of terror. And listen, this isn't open to, to, to uh, a debate or discussion, uh, not for a matter of days, weeks, or months, or even years, but for decades, 
Cuba's had a horrible human rights record. So uh, does China. Uh, What's the difference? You know, we, we get along well with China. Is it just trade? <laughs> well, but with respect, uh, trade's a separate issue. And so if you, know, if you want to talk about the trade aspects of that, but my, my point is that you know, the president made this decision without consulting Congress, and now you're asking members of Congress what they think about it after the fact. Well, you guys can and, um, you know, and the fact is, um, you know, my concern about all these things, and I know Beto's got a bill that you know, relates to lifting the travel ban, but um, you know, when the government's run by uh, an oppressive military dictator, most of the money that comes in goes to an oppressive military dictator and funds what that dictator wants to do. And if it's to oppress his people, then I'm concerned about anything that gives him greater opportunity to do that. So, um, you know, I'm one that um, wasn't pleased with the idea of, of uh, with the recent developments with respect to Cuba and the way the president approached it. Congressman Sparenthold, you get, again, you get a, a and I'm, I'm not at all, uh, you know, making a blanket statement about the Cuban people. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're all, they're all great people and they are escaping what they think. They want a better life here, like all, you know, the nation of immigrants and the, how all that goes. But Congressman Sparenthold, state sponsor of terrorism just recently removed. You get here, you behave yourself for a year, you get a green card. You're an 11-year-old kid from El Salvador that rides a train to get over here. You're like, get it the hell out of here, boy. You're not taking my in-state tuition. Is that and, right? the, and those are policy questions that need to be debated in Congress that the president needs to work with Congress for and not act unilaterally. The laws with respect to uh, refugees from Cuba have been in place for decades. And as the crisis developed in other areas acted. of the world, it's a, it, it's a situation that needs to be addressed through the process that we all learned in Schoolhouse Rock. It's not for the president to make the, make the rules. That's a dictator's job, and we don't have a dictatorship in this country. And the problem we've seen in my five years in Congress is given the opportunity the president would rather go at it alone than even come talk to Congress uh, about something he might get some agreement on. Congressman Castro, of the, uh, the other famous Castro brothers, do you want to yeah. on? Uh, Well, the first thing is that that's a wild exaggeration. President Obama has signed less executive order orders, for example, than President Reagan did. Uh, I support it's his policy. It's not quantity, it's quality. I support his policy on Cuba. There are two parts of it. The first one is normalization of diplomatic relations. We've now opened embassies in each right. country. The second part of it is a trade embargo, and I think that that will also end. Uh, it's a matter of time as to when it ends. Uh, in the process of that, we'll take a close look at their human rights record and how they're treating their citizens. Uh, but aside from that, I think the trade embargo will end. And it's consistent. If you look at this president, what he's doing is taking on outdated policies. So. With respect to Cuba, he's changed that. Uh, our disengagement or non-engagement at all with Iran. Uh, obviously, we've got a nuclear agreement now. Uh, and also, even though on this specific bill he issued a veto threat, the idea of, of lifting the crude oil export ban, which is a 1975 law. So he's taking on these long-standing policies, uh, and the trade embargo will be part of that. And I'm going to take issue with the fact that we have an agreement with Iran. The president has never fully brought that before Congress to be approved. He's not given us the secret side deals. The agreement has been not been approved by Congress and I don't think can legally take effect. Folks, if you all have any uh, questions you'd like to ask, I'd ask you all to, to line up or start lining up if you could. I appreciate it. Um, just, I want to take a page from my boss, Evan Smith, and just do a, a lightning round real quick and just a one-word a one answer. Um, Maybe, maybe not Homeland Security, but uh, your vote for uh, speaker? <laughs> <laughs> Three of them already know. Three well, of them yeah, know. Well, <laughs> let's let it run. So, Congressman, you want to say a name? Oh, uh, well, I don't, I don't, it, it's going to be decided by the Republican majority, sure. but if they would do the Texas model where Democrats get involved, uh, we would certainly get uh, something that and would be more bipartisan. Michael McCall is my friend. That's, okay, he's your friend. All right, that's what I was getting yeah. at. Congressman? Listen, the field isn't complete yet. It's foolish to choose I mean, who you're going to vote for uh, before you know who all the players are. I can tell you there are the, now there are now at least five Texans. If you had looking to pull the trigger right now, who yeah. would who would it be? Well, I, I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to put myself out uh, on that till I know who the players are. I'd vote for McCall if we were running though. I'd have no problem with Mike. Okay, that's two. If you had, if you had to support somebody. If there was. <laughs> Yeah, if there was a Republican who was willing to work with Democrats and govern the House of Representatives fairly and effectively, then I think you would see a lot of Democrats willing to step forward who's and support the, that person. Who's the closest person but to that right They've now. got to step forward. You know, Charlie Dent has been all over television making the case for a bipartisan Give coalition, but somebody's <laughs> got to step in there and do it. Congressman? You know, I agree with, with Joaquin, but I will say 
we have, we're in the second of the two least productive sessions of Congress, preceded by one of the most productive in American history, led by Nancy Pelosi. So I, I think she's great speaker material. Yeah. I've been on public record about this for over a month. Trey Gowdy. Okay, still your guy? Right. I'd have no problem with Gowdy either. I'd, he's my friend, but he's sure, he, he ducks it there. every time somebody <laughs> suggests it. All right. No, so please not me. Sir? Uh, hi, my name's Will Mack. I'm from San Antonio, so uh, say hi to our San Antonio reps. Um, <clears throat> is there a realistic prospect of seeing comprehensive immigration reform in the near future, and if not comprehensive immigration reform, then just a piecemeal approach? Who I'll wants, take it. Who wants to I, 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 I don't see there being a, 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 a direct path to a comprehensive immigration reform. Lots of folks see that as code for another amnesty program. The problem with piece by piece is that the folks who are pushing for comprehensive urge their uh, congressmen to not vote for piece by piece because it takes out part of the coalition that supports it. I think there's broad agreement we need more science, technologies, mathematics, and engineering visas, but if that were done single-handedly, it would take the tech community out of pushing for a bigger package that includes uh, amnesty. The same could be true for agricultural guest workers, an increased number of H-1B visas, and a wide variety of other changes. So uh, it, it, it's a tough political situation. So short right short yeah. answer seems what, to be no in the immediate future. Yeah, it, it, it's going to be hard. Uh, amnesty, is, by the way, is what Reagan uh, and the Democrats did back in 1986. But let me, let me just say this. It's a very difficult issue. I support it. But when Bush had a majority in the House and the Senate, he got close. He didn't do it. When uh, President Obama uh, had a majority in the House and the Senate, I remember April of 2009, the Hispanic Caucus, we sat down with them. We asked them for immigration reform. He said he was going to be busy with the fiscal financial situation and the health care. He had other things to work. We lost that opportunity. So even when you have a majority president, I mean, you have a president that's a Republican, House and Senate Republicans didn't happen. President Obama had a House and Senate Democratic majority, and it still didn't happen. Next question. And that's what's so frustrating about it. We need immigration reform. Thank you, Congressman. Ma'am? Hi, my name is Ramana Gopneja. I'm a freshman student here. And I was wondering, you addressed the fact that Border Patrol agents have increased, but most Americans don't realize they stand about 45 miles away from the southern border, so it's still pretty porous. What's the opposition on the left to actually addressing border security before trying to accommodate for those here? Because we've been doing that since Reagan, and it hasn't stopped the influx of Im illegal immigrants yeah. coming. Con Congressman Arug, I'll let you feel that one because Border Patrol agents, I mean, from, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm mistaken, but they're right on the border. There's some outside the border, but the right. majority at the border. Yeah, they are at the border. And again, when, when you had the spike in asylees, from the Northern Triangle country, they weren't evading detection. They were walking up to the men and women in green to uh, turn themselves in. Uh, as Joaquin said earlier, in 2000, we went from 1.6 million apprehensions to at the height of the influx from Central America, uh, not even 400,000. So uh, I think if you look at it relatively, uh, if you even just look at it in absolute terms, we have the capacity to take care of people who need our help, who should be here, who are fleeing violence and danger. And if they're bad actors, if they're criminals, if they have a record of violence or abuse, they should be first in line to be deported. And I think we all support that. And I think, by and large, that is working today. It would work far better if we had comprehensive immigration reform. And that gets back to the speaker question. Once we have a speaker who will put it on the floor, it will pass. And, and I think all of us would, would agree to that. Thanks, sir. To your question. We often talk about how a weak president is detrimental to U.S. homeland security. How does the disarray currently seen in the House reflect our, um, basically on the foreign perception of the United States and what role might a coalition speaker play in fixing that disarray? I don't think there's a disarray I, I, at all. I think we're, we've taken a step back and are rather than rushing into appointing a, a new speaker based on seniority or hierarchy, we're taking time to listen, A, to what the constituents back home uh, want and B to talk about what we want in a speaker as opposed to who we want for a speaker. We're looking at the characteristics of a speaker. So I think slowing down is good. It's an opportunity for healing within the Republican conference. I know the media who's trying to get you to continue to watch cable news through the next commercial makes it far more dramatic than it is. But I really do think this is the, the system working. You want to chime in yeah, on? if I may add to that, I, I don't see this as disarray at all. Um, uh, to me, what I think this reflects is that 
The Republican Party is listening to its base. It's listening to its people. Listen, this is historic. You've got, you've got a uh, Republican uh, Speaker of the House stepping aside for the good of his party and the good of his country, a majority leader who is, who is in line to get his party's conference nomination to step aside. What it shows uh, is that Republicans understand that the American people see Washington and the status quo as not working. And Republicans are trying to change the way we do business. And that's a reflection of what's going on in the House. You know, with all due respect to my, my Democratic colleagues over on the other side, we've still got Reid, we've still got Pelosi, and now they're trying to bring back Hillary Clinton. You know, uh, so from my perspective, this uh, development in the House is showing the American people that we're listening, that the status quo isn't working. And I see well, it as nothing uh, but a positive. Uh, now, now, now that they mentioned the Democrats, I was not going to say it was a Republican issue, but let, let me say this. Every, every major piece of legislation that has passed has not passed with a Republican majority. If you look at the, at the, uh, the, the shutdown we're going to see just on September 30th, yeah. only 91 Republicans out of 246 voted for it, and the rest were Democrats. Otherwise, things would not pass if it wasn't for the Democrats. We want to be bipartisan. Okay. If you don't want a government shutdown, get some of your friends on the Democrat side in the Senate to take up the appropriations bills and quit shoving CRs down our throat. We're, we're moving on, gentlemen. Ma'am, a question? Thank you. Hi, my name is Erica Reyes. <laughs> I'm actually from El Paso. Um, I apologize if my question is very broad, but it does touch um, a lot of subjects. We spoke a little bit about um, economics and how border security affects it. Uh, one of the big problems I think in El Paso is that we don't have enough uh, foreign trade and right now our surface trade is very low and I want to know your insights and remedies on how we can make that better and I agree with you Beto that a lot of the um, terroristic threats are coming from the Canadian border something that um, not a lot of people address is human trafficking which that is um, mostly an eastern problem but it, it does happen and uh, I just want to know your insights. To, 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 real quick, to, to her question about trade, I just wanted to write all off these numbers. So from January to August of this year, $352 billion in two-way trade between the United States and Mexico. Uh, the Laredo uh, Trading District, uh, $181 billion of that. Um, El Paso's second, but a distant second, at $60 billion. So I guess the first part, how does El Paso sort of close the gap? So thanks for the question. And, and two speakers behind you is, is Richard Dayub, who's the CEO of the El Paso Chamber of Commerce. He knows these numbers better than I do. But the... El Paso branch of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank estimates that one out of every four jobs in El Paso is connected to trade. And it's very clear to me that after a half century of being the low-wage, low-skill capital of North America, post-NAFTA, we have shed that image and really started to invest in higher-value, higher-skill jobs that are connected to the rest of the world. I was in the minority of Democrats who voted for Trade Promotion Authority, that's fast-track for the president, in part because I know that El Paso is connected more than ever to a global economy, but you're right. What we have today, the 90 billion that's passing through, the one out of every four jobs, we can do much better with those and actually add a lot more value to what's passing through the community right now. One big opportunity for El Paso, and I think for Texas, is that as the United States and Mexico become a co-production platform, you have more of the supplier inputs originate in Texas and originate in communities like El Paso. Right now, they're connected to factory floor jobs in Flint, Michigan, in South Carolina, throughout the United States, which is great, but there's more of the pie that we can grab here in El Paso. So I think that's a big opportunity. I'm going to read TPP before I make a decision on whether I will support it, but I'm going to be looking for how El Paso, how Texas, how the U.S. Uh, either benefits or does not from the agreement as negotiated. So I think that's an opportunity for El Paso. Sir, on the left, your question. Yeah, this oh, may sound a little bit more tactical, but it's kind of following on on the very first question. I'm Sandy Dochin with IBM. IBM was very much for comprehensive, and I guess the point is, if that's not going to work as a tactic, let's try the incremental. Let's separate the illegal, uh, illegal issues from the legal issues. Congressman Ferenthold, you talked about H-1Bs. That's, of course, something we're very interested in. The fact that you say, gee, if, if you lose us on that, you won't have us on the rest of the other things, Maybe you need to try something else. It could be, look, guys, CEOs are saying, Congress, you haven't delivered on anything. If you deliver on something, ask us for our help on these other things, and maybe we'll help you and deliver for you. It and just seems you like there's got to be another way, because we've heard the same thing from many Congresses. 
from both sides of the aisle, frankly. Let's get something everyone can agree with, move ahead, declare victory, and get together and, and declare more victory. Is that, why is that, is that, is that not your, a plausible question? Is that your question? Is there any other option? Why is there not a more plausible way to try some other tactics? Because it just sounds like, with all due respect, very broken records. And I think we've got an opportunity here with the new speaker. We've passed several uh, pieces, including uh, including uh, STEM visas and the like out of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, they, have, they just haven't made it to the floor. With a new speaker, we may see something different then. Quickly, just if I can add to that, there is a strategy uh, within, the, within the Republican conference, and that is uh, to pair um, Congressman uh, McCall's um, uh, Secure Borders Act, so securing the border, and pairing that with uh, the four bills that are moving through the Judiciary Committee um, that Blake mentioned that relate to interior enforcement, E-Verify, um, and so uh, hopefully later this year what you're going to see is those move to the floor for a vote together where we address border security and interior enforcement as the first part of addressing immigration issues. Thanks. Sir, your question? Okay. First thing I have is that you keep saying that Obama will not work with Congress. Well, you get frustrated when you try to work with Congress. And every time they, you, he does, uh, they put him down. That's number one. The second thing is you claim that uh, people who own subsistence are the ones that buy the drugs. How about the wealthy no, it's, that buy it's, the it's drugs? Not. Well, well he's, all right, so to, to, to clarify, you, you, didn't, you didn't say everybody that's on, that, that needs assistance is buying dope, did you? No, of okay. course not. All right, I mean, so, but he brings, you know, yeah, what but, about, go ahead. But if you look, Historically, actually, some of the best progress is made with a divided government that works with a president willing to make a deal. Bill Clinton balanced the budget working with Congress. We, Bill Clinton was negotiating and working with Congress. Clinton said, look, I may not get everything I want, but I'm going to get some of it. Obama is my way or the highway. They're two very completely different styles. Yeah. Hearing a lot of booze and hisses, I'm going to move on to the next question. Yeah. We Thank are you. in Austin. <laughs> yeah, that's true. My name is Jason Finkelman. I'm an immigration attorney. My, my question is for uh, Representative Ferenthold. Um, you've been a leader on high school immigration, and uh, uh, we really appreciate that, especially here in Austin. Uh, um, but uh, I also do some work with undocumented immigrants, and uh, they're struggling just as much, uh, if not more, uh, because of the broken immigration system. So would you support a pathway to legal status for undocumented immigrants? You call them undocumented immigrants, I call them illegal aliens. I'm not going to surrender the language on that because they broke the law when they entered this country. Now, there is no appetite uh, among my constituents to uh, address that issue until we've got the sec uh, border secure. Reagan promised border security in exchange for amnesty. That's a broken promise. Once that promise is kept, I think there'll be more appetite for a discussion as to what to do with the folks that are already here, whether it's a pathway to legal status, whether it's a pathway to citizenship, or whether it's something else. But I don't think that conversation uh, is ripe until we've secured the borders. If we do another amnesty-type program without secure borders, we're doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Is that to say you're, you're in support of mass deportation? I didn't say that either. I said we've got to get the border secure and then we can have a conversation. My constituents are mad that we can't secure the border. This is the United States of America. The belief that we can't secure the border is ludicrous. To, we have to, the yeah, technology well, to, to do to, it. To, 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 follow, I, I, to follow up on his question, though, on the mass deportation issue, because you, you do hear a lot of Republicans say that, said, I'm not for amnesty, but I'm not for mass deportation. Isn't not deporting people in mass somewhat amnesty by allowing them to stay here? Well, the, the question becomes what happens as we move forward to it. Listen, I, the status quo uh, is tough, but wh again, why are we wasting our time changing all these laws when the past tells us we've got to get the border security first or we're going to be in the same situation uh, again? And, 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 and let me say, look, I think it was in 2006 when Bush and the Republican Senate passed over an immigration bill. It was pretty good. It was between McCain and uh, Kennedy, it was a good one. The Republican House at that time said, we gotta take care of the border. So we, bid, uh, we, we put money for 700, this is what the response was, 700 miles of uh, fencing, make it a felon if you dig a tunnel under a international uh, uh, border. That was it. The goalpost keeps, keep, uh, keeps moving over and over as to what security is. We no. spend $18 billion a year on border security. 
$18 billion a year on border security. And look, we've been talking about security uh, for a while. Let me give you one quick story. Quickly. There, there was a family to cross the river. B uh, border officials say, hey, we got to get that family. Everybody say, yeah, we need to do that. Except that was, it was a letter written in 1830 by a Mexican um, officer talking about American families that are across the river and not the Rio Grande. So we've been talking about immigration. If we don't sit down in a bipartisan way, we're going to keep talking about this for a long, long time. Got time Thank for you for your question. It's a good question. Two more questions. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm not even sure where to begin now. <laughs> uh, Richard Dayu from the El Paso Chamber of Commerce. Uh, thank you all for participating in this process. And actually, some of the previous question, questions were asked touches on what I want to bring to your attention right now. And Congressman, your statement a moment ago about border security, I think is maybe most paramount in this whole discussion. I just came from a session with our Texas group across the way on the whole same issue. And I would offer you first an opinion. And that opinion is no one can define for me, no one has defined for any of us what border security looks like, Right. first of all. What is the and question? Just, and so now going to the question, as we talk about comprehensive reform, I would recommend to you to strongly begin considering a number of aspects pursuing this, including we had, we had many years ago legally a temporary worker visa that enabled people to come into this country, work for a period of time, return back to their country, since so many of them come here for economic reasons. Part of the reason, part of the reason we have such a big problem with human trafficking is because with the policy set today that does not permit temporary worker visas, these people are coming in illegally because that's the only way they can right. get in the country. Right. So I want to encourage you to consider that as part of your solution. And I also want to strongly encourage you uh, what is the question, sir? I'm sorry. to find a solution that's coming session. So with that in mind, you keep referring to the next speaker, the next speaker. But I want to ask you, what are you prepared to do, the collective you right now, your cross-section of Congress, what are you prepared to do to reach across the aisle to find some solutions for comprehensive reform? I, I think the, this group here actually works pretty well together. The Texas delegation, Republican and Democrat, uh, uh, tend to agree on, uh, on a lot more issues than the broader parties uh, in general. I think Henry will back me up on that. Uh, will we'll, we'll, uh, Congressman Castro back you up on that? <laughs> now, that now, that's the question. <laughs> kind of sitting there like somebody We do have our outliers. <laughs> do you agree? Do you all work well together? Uh, the delegation? On, on certain Texas issues, certainly. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. The things that I've worked on for San Antonio, for example, I've worked on with Lamar Smith, uh, with some with Will Hurd. So everything that we do in the minority, if you're going to pass something, you have to get buy-in from folks in the majority party. So to some extent that's true, but there are deep disagreements on other issues. Obviously so. Last question, sir. Yes, hello. Um, I'm from Nicaragua, from Central America, and I got a proposition for security for immigration. It's um, instead of like investing so much money in security in the north border, which in immigration starts in El Salvador, you should take responsibility and help the Central American countries to do subsidize the budget for security so we can actually invest that money in preventing those people to come here. Because how many Caraguan I pay taxes and those taxes go to prevent the drugs to come here and take care of your citizens, right? So that sounds friendly. That doesn't sound as an enemy. So the, the question I'm assuming is, is, should the United States give more money to Central, more aid to Central America? Definitely, yeah. it, 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 it should be accountable. It should be connected to prescribed outcomes and, and methods by which uh, the money will be spent. It should be connected to civil society and not necessarily yeah, yeah, the, the, uh, the governments. Um, but if, if you look at the history of U.S. involvement in Central America, we are producing many of the effects that we're now reaping, whether it was investing in the civil wars in Nicaragua with the Contras or in El Salvador against the FMLN or uh, using uh, Honduras as ba basically a military base in the 1980s, we generated a lot of the outflow from those countries and significantly helped to destabilize that part of the world. So we do have a responsibility, first and foremost, for, for our culpability. But second, I think we have a shared interest. When Central America is prosperous, there are jobs and opportunities and security for the people there. They don't want to come to the United States. We, we sometimes are too egotistical in the U.S. and think that everybody wants to come here and be a U.S. citizen. No, people want to live 
in their homes and the communities in which they were born, where their families are. Let's help them to do that. And I think the, the idea that we spend there instead of on walls or security is an excellent point. We don't, we don't have the money Gentlemen. to take care of our own people here in the no, United no, no, States. Folks, on that, on that note, we'll end it. Thank you all very much. For me. We don't have the money. Let me just say this, $18 billion on border security, $18 billion on border security, $18 billion on U.S. border security. Last year, we added $80 million appropriations to help Mexico secure the border with, uh, with uh, Guatemala. With those $80 million, did you know in six months, they deported people that were coming over here, 92,000, and we only did 70,000 with 80 million dollars. We need to work with our friends to the southern border, absolutely. Yeah. Really, folks, on that note, thank you all very much for being here. We appreciate it, and I hope you all enjoyed yourselves as, as much as we did up here. Thank you very much. This is good.